0: You're listening to the Lean Six Sigma for Good podcast. We help you learn how Lean and Six Sigma concepts can be applied to nonprofits, NGOs, and not-for-profit organizations. Visit us at LeanSixSigmaForGood.com. We got Jason Grimm here with Iowa Valley RC&D. Is that Resource Conservation and Development? Is that the acronym? Jason, do you wanna just kick us off with uh, a little background on yourself? And just tell you how tell us how you got into this in this line of work. I know you've been doing it for a, quite a while now, and um, we're just going to learn a little bit more about the program.
1: Yeah, so I at the Iowa Valley RC&D, I am our deputy director, and uh, prior to that, when I started at the organization about 11 years ago, I helped create our food system programming. So we work on several projects that involve different sectors of the food system from production to distribution to eventually kind of the waste stream of our food system. My uh, professional background is actually in landscape architecture, environmental studies from a design uh, design and planning perspective. So I kind of look at the food system um, from farmers to farmers markets to different components that can be moved around and how they interact with each other and what are the tools and resources that allow those systems to work together. Um, Today, um, our organization has about eight staff members, uh, five that are full-time and three that are part-time. We work on projects that um, either focus on a nine to six county region in Eastern Iowa, to a few statewide projects with several different kinds of partners. And then we also have started to interact with others um, nationally on a couple uh, collaborative projects, um, primarily in the Midwest, um, but we have worked with some others um, in other corners of the country as well.
0: When did uh, you get directly involved with this? How long has that been with, uh, with with the organization?
1: So, I started uh, at our organization in, in uh, 2009, directly at a college actually. And um, since then, I've kind of uh, saw my work as sort of similar to many entrepreneurs where you find the work, you find the funding um, to do the type of work that you want to, in my case, to try to design a food system or create a food system in our region and how we envision
0: it to look like. We've got a new share. Hello. <laughs> Um, and so, how did you get involved with um, Iowa Valley? What was your tie-in?
2: So, uh, I was working uh, on my PhD under Professor Carolyn Krigy, uh since like 2013, 2015 at Iowa State, and initially, like uh, Dr. Kregy and Jason like started to work on some of the projects related to like food hubs and supply chain so i was involved as a student in one of the projects for which uh, jason and dr rajik got a funding from um, north central region sustainable agriculture research and education and the project involved the project involved like designing a inventory tracking system for a, a system of food hubs in iowa so i was involved as a student over the, like at that time and uh, since then like i've been working with jason on like like multiple projects so like uh, one of the projects uh, include like designing uh, uh, in, uh, like an inventory management system for food hubs and like uh, for food hubs in like Washington, Michigan and uh, recently we like collaborated on a project uh, which involves designing a, a traceability software for farmers to be used for like gap certification and uh, recently jason and uh, a faculty at iowa state and uh, 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 like a supply chain specialist at university of minnesota extension we recently got a funding to involve uh, uh, undergraduate students at dunwoody uh, also to work on a project on transportation cost estimation for farmers so like we have been working since like like four to five years on like a couple of pro like different projects in which I've applied industrial engineering techniques, primarily on like food systems.
0: Great, and Jason, it says that you uh, took some classes at PSU, Portland State, is that true?
1: Yeah, I did a small exchange program during my, uh, well, it would have been my senior year of our five-year program. Okay. Yeah, Great university, great time, many memories there.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good school. Um, kind of hidden in the middle of a major downtown area. It's kind of interesting how many students go there. It's really shocking. And I found there's like 20, 30, almost 30,000 students, I think. So, but you wouldn't know it if you were just walking around the downtown area. Yep. So you came out and uh, lived here for about a year?
1: Yeah, for like year? about, half, about uh, six or seven months. It was a semester okay. long. Went a little bit earlier and stayed a little bit longer.
0: Yeah, okay. Yep. So uh, tell us a little bit about some of these projects. I don't know if uh, if the news you want to start or Jason, if you want to start, but um, kind of uh, you're talking specifically about food hubs and uh, I kind of like Jason, your description of this whole kind of system approach of looking at all the different pieces of it, because as we know that you can get one part right, but if the rest of it's not (laughs) in sync, it uh, doesn't go very far. Um, Yeah.
1: I can maybe start. Um, Anuj Great. briefly talked about how he first, you know, the two of us met when he was, an, when he was the master's student, I think still at the time. Um, we had gotten funding from North Central SARE. Um, one of the roles that I play uh, statewide is I coordinate the Iowa Food Hub Managers Working Group. It is a group of seven uh, separate businesses, food hub businesses. Uh, they are nonprofits. They're sole proprietor businesses, they're LLCs, they're actual, one is an actual co-op business structure. Um, They all operate in different uh, regions and areas of the state. Um, We, uh, I coordinate uh, like professional development and collaborative project development between those hubs. Uh, We meet quarterly. Um, Prior to the COVID, we we would travel around the state and meet at each other's facilities and like do tours, allow each of that that food hub to talk about you know things they struggle with and allow the other food hubs to hear about how they can potentially provide some here's what works for me you might be able to implement that at your food hub Um, so we have a lot of trust we've been doing that collaboration since about 2013 I believe it was Um, so since then we've actually had meetings where uh, individual staff at some food hubs have came to tears crying about like how how hard it is. Uh, they're struggling with their business at the time. Um, so we have a lot of trust with each other and share a lot of personal stuff. And it's a pretty small, small group. We don't allow just anyone to come to the meetings. You have to be a staff or uh, like a board member of the specific business uh, itself. Um, the first project though, we saw back in 2014, that several of the food hubs are buying from the same vendors in other parts of the state. Uh, one food hub was driving four hours from Southwest Iowa to Northeast Iowa, just so that she could get access to Iowa-produced um, milk that was being bottled in Iowa yogurt. Um, because in Northeast Iowa, or Eastern Iowa is where we have far, a lot more a locally produced bottle locally uh, local creameries local dairies that are producing those products Versus in southwest Iowa, there's fewer opportunities so we're finding that a lot of the food hubs were crossing paths and actually seeing them their individual trucks passing each other Going opposite directions on the road um, and we're like what, what this is totally wrong that we're not collaborating collaborating with each other neither of our trucks are full so Uh, we started a project where we created a tracking software, um, Dr. Kretschke, who was within the, um, chain engineering uh, department and working in Anuj was a student of hers at the time. We thought we we were actually having weekly phone calls. And we were talking about if you met here, would we cross paths at the same time? Would this food hub be willing to hold something overnight in their cooler? And then the next day, another food hub comes and picks it up to to reduce transportation for one food hub and also um, allow other food hubs to be able to uh, expand product opportunities by tapping into another food hub's network of vendors. And so we realized we needed a software to help actually track this inventory of so that because we often had mistakes where things were left at one place or forgot to get picked up and which then trickled down and infected all of us in the long run. So we created a simple app uh, with the help of Anuj and Carolyn, Dr. Kretschke, um, that actually the the truck drivers would check in uh, product when they picked it up on their truck. And then when they would get to the end destination, they would actually check it out. So we could actually track uh, that the right number of things were picked up and dropped off. And this app connected to a label platform that the farmers or the vendors would use to label the products so that it would say the name of the farm, which was a box one or box 10 out of 20 um, so that the truck, the delivery driver could actually make sure that they got everything picked up.
0: How many food hubs um, are there in Iowa? uh, Currently
1: we have seven food hubs. I think in that collaboration we had uh, four uh, operating in that collaboration. you know, out of that seven, uh, well, for example, one of the food hubs in, is in more north central Iowa, kind of disconnected from our current routes that other food hubs have. So we don't have uh, consistent crossover and trucking routes. So we've found it more difficult to involve them in some of these trucking transportation collaboration um, question or um, projects. That, that project led us into a larger set of funding through USDA that today uh, we're still working on where we're actually designing some tools that the food hubs can use to track their inventory um, themselves, um, tools that are allowing uh, food hubs to kind of analyze their sales, analyze their routes, And then today, we uh, well, just this past spring, we started a project that now is involving some Minnesota food hubs and Minnesota farmers, where we can actually, a lot of the food hubs uh, don't have a good handle on what is the cost to deliver X number of uh, boxes from point A to point B, if I have to pick it up from this farm and this farm um, in that route. Also, how does it play into if this is a frozen product and this is a refrigerated product, this is a box that weighs 100 pounds versus a box that weighs 25 pounds. So um, we have some funding right now. We are actually just started to do some interviews. Well, we just wrapped up some interviews where we're trying to develop a tool that uh, a farmer or food hub can put in information into it, and it'll give them a rough estimate back on what would be the cost to transport this item from point A to point B. And if a food hub would use that, it would allow them to better estimate how much to charge to a customer for a service that they're providing. Um, many of the food hubs found that they're sort of undercutting themselves and not charging the appropriate amount. And they're having they're actually subsidizing the cost to, to transport something for someone else from point A to point B. Some of the food hubs used either a percent of the gross value of what they're transporting or they're using a just a flat fee. Um, so different food hubs are using different uh, pricing structures and this tool is meant to help them dial that system in. And uh, yeah, we've had uh, students at, at Iowa State that have been involved in that project from Anuj at the PhD level to multiple uh, master students. And then even a couple undergrad students that have helped either do design of those systems, create the actual you know the code and the engineering to create those uh, systems. Others have just uh, simply helped create the survey tools and the survey questions or make phone calls and actually do uh, phone interviews with uh, prospective farmers or food hubs. So students have been involved at different levels or different uh, Depending on their ability or their level of education, what you know, things that they could actually work on.
2: Another like uh, project that I just wanted to mention is uh, the inventory, the inventory tracking system for uh, farms, in which they can trace uh, their farm products from like from like from farm to fork, basically. And uh, how like that particular project started with a small funding from. Johnson County, right Jason? And then like uh, the funding has been secured from uh, Iowa Department of Agriculture and USDA also. So we are like working on that project and I was involved in that project when I was a student. So, and that continued, uh, that is still continuing and we have a student at Dunwoody also like who is being involved in that particular project. So like uh, who's an undergrad right now? Just, yeah, as what Jason mentioned, like the students have been involved in these projects, like from all levels, like bachelor's, uh, master's, and like even at PhD level.
0: How is that working with, uh, like, is it part of the classwork or is it part of just uh, opportunities that come up? Like, yeah, how, how are the students tied into this? Is it um, coursework or is it project work or?
2: So, primarily, these projects were like mostly research based uh, like as a part of a funding, but, uh, currently, for example, the project, uh, uh like uh, that we have, uh, this, we have got the funding from north central region, share that uh, project that Jason also mentioned, like designing a cost estimation tool for farmers in that particular project. We are uh, like, uh, we have mentioned the funding to have three caps on projects for students at Dunwoody College of Technology in the industrial engineering program. So that would be a more like formalized, like capstone project being designed for students.
0: The other part would just be research, maybe that one of the professors is working on at the time. And then is it like grad students um, that would be involved or what you're talking about, the capstone is basically that the end of their grad or at the end of their undergrad, yep. they're coming in and working on a specific project. Exactly. Um, okay. The
2: so capstone project is a requirement. It's a uh, like a, uh, like I think it's a four-credit course or yeah I think it's a four-credit course uh, required for a degree completion at Dunwoody uh, sure. in their senior
1: year. I found that uh, I feel like involving students in projects the most successful way has been where it's either as like a researcher research assistant or like a uh, capstone project similar to what Anu just talked about. I have worked with students on where it's like a student project or a group project I found that uh, kind of results back from the students have been more variable in those instances because students are doing it as it's just like a class assignment and it's a graded assignment versus like being in the being in a situation where it's they're being compensated or they're being as a part-time employee um, it's been easier to kind of manage what kind of Expectations you get from the students, and what kind of uh, finished product you get. Um, I've I've had really great student group projects, and I've had really poor student group projects. And it's more it's it's much easier to manage I stu- I shouldn't call it manage, but to uh, lead and to mentor students when they're um, have. Uh, kind of different expectations and responsibilities set up for them versus they're just getting a grade. They're able to um, Kind of control whether how much effort they want to put into the work.
0: Yeah, that's good um, Good to know. I mean, I think that's kind of the part of this discussion too is how can we? Figure out ways to get students involved with great work that's going on in the community But do it in an effective way that's good for the students. It's good for the organization um, and for the, and then ultimately for the community. So, um, I think those are, uh, great tips and advice for other schools to, uh, consider and think about.
1: And I, I, uh, we found that, uh, a lot of the funding, uh, pieces that we have used, we've been able to work in, um, we don't always, uh, call the, actually, they're not always like employees, but they're usually just typically like a 1090 contract kind of, um, so we'll write in little stipends from $500 to $1,200, depending on how much time we'll expect the student to work on our project. I, I believe that the students are, um, you know, they're really um, putting something to the community, and so they should be, you know, fairly compensated for their time. We also make sure that like the farmers or whoever. The actual businesses that are being asked to like comment or provide feedback on some of these things are also being compensated for their time because they're often taking time out of their professional work to do this. So uh, those are the things that we try to work into our our funding because I feel like those things ensure that the project can be successful if everyone is fairly compensated as well.
0: There's also a listing here with Viva Farms and Michigan State Extension. Is that tied in with what you've talked about already or is there uh, some other activities going on there? And i like to also like the, the other discussion with connecting with other uh, states. If You want to yeah, share so some info on that?
1: Those two projects um, are, pra- are an example of some of the tools that we've started to create that we're working towards to make open source. So having students and professionals like Anuj involved in these uh, projects ha- have allowed us to then uh, release tools that can be open source for other farms or food hubs to use. And so Viva Farms is an actual incubator uh, farm uh, north of Seattle. They have about 20 different farmers that rent land from this large tract of land of theirs to get their businesses started. Um, and... They, Viva Farms, the, the main organization, aggregates a uh, product that those uh, incubating farmers grow into a CSA or community supported agriculture, like box of food, that then they sell to a customer and deliver once a week. Uh, they also aggregate uh, all that supply that all those farmers are growing and then sell that to institutions or restaurants. And they were uh, copying, pasting a lot of data every week to individual Avery label templates to put on boxes to make sure they have traceability from which farm grew it to where it was being sold. And uh, we, they reached out out to us about, after hearing some of the tools that we had created. And so we've now, uh, is that probably, they've used it for two seasons. So it's probably almost three years ago, we created a Google uh, spreadsheet and Excel based tool that they're currently using To aggregate all the product um, that their farmers list stuff to, it aggregates an inventory, common inventory between amongst all those farms. And then it also creates a labeling system that uh, they're able just to hit a couple buttons and it spits out labels for them that's uh, branded with their business, branded and then labels the product, the farm that grew it, what the product is, um, all that kind of important traceability information. For Michigan State um, we created some uh, kind of custom invoicing and custom uh, traceability tools and labeling tools that then they've been able to share with some of their farm partners there in Michigan as well. Um, and just like uh, the tool that news talked about that's uh, tracking inventory and traceability of foods that we're growing um, our, our organization has a program that's called Grow Johnson County, where, where we actually farm five acres of land. That's actually where I'm sitting today is in the barn at our farm. Um, and we all the food that we grow, um, which is about 25,000 pounds worth of food, we freely distribute to 13 agencies within our county. That then goes into food pantries, food banks, meal sites, um even neighborhood centers where the some of those foods go in home with families and like uh at the end of a kind of through a daycare um, um, centers and we wanted to better track where all this food is eventually going but also where which part of the farm is growing it which field um, we annually get an audit for what's called a GAP certification. It's called Good Agricultural Practices. It covers important food safety uh, aspects of our farm business. And uh, we were doing a lot of handwriting of uh, lot codes and uh, on different um, records and lot sheets. And we found that that was actually slowing down our efficiencies and we we're creating a lot of errors by any. Uh, inconsistencies and in how individuals were recording stuff and so we Anuj at the time was a part-time employee of ours while he was still a student and so we had a small uh, pot of funds so that we created a custom tool for ourselves and then when we did that we realized that this would be an important resource for other farmers and uh, now uh, with one of Anuj's students at Dunwoody uh, later this winter, we're planning to re- release it as a custom uh, open source tool that other farmers will be able to download through our website. Um, and then we may release other like uh, versions of that, you know, in the years afterwards. But um, it's been great to involve the students and, you know, Anuj in, in through Iowa State and Dunwoody College. To be able to impact our work so that we can make these tools available to others um, as well. And we, you know, this has been meant to be an open source thing and non, we're not planning on making any income from this, but as a resource that we can share and improve efficiencies, improve professionalism on other farms.
0: I think the ability to remove kind of the non, I would say non critical, it's like the, 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 the work that you know you really don't want to be spending time doing you know it's not the essential part of getting food to the right places you know and growing food so taking away that other work that uh, gets in the way I think is is pretty powerful
2: and I think I uh, just wanted to add one thing is like how like a partnership with the educational institute of nonprofits like how these like how this partnership can like leverage like, and how this partnership will enable basically creating these tools at a very low cost so that the the cost is not being transferred to like nonprofits or even like small farmers. So that's probably uh, the benefit of this kind of model in which like nonprofits partners with uh, Educational Institute is the cost. And definitely it's like a learning curve for students in which they definitely learn technical skills as well as like they uh, get to see the impact they're making on the community.
0: If you like this topic, please check out Lean Six Sigma for Good, Lessons from the Gemba. Volume one is released and available through Amazon. We will soon have an audible version coming out early 2020 and we're working on volume two as we speak. Volume one has eight chapters written by different authors who share their experiences applying Lean and Six Sigma to not-for-profit organizations. All proceeds from the sales of the book series will go to the nonprofits selected by the authors. Thanks for your support.
3: Well, you know, one, one thing that I think is worth mentioning is the, is the civic portion of this and getting students involved with, uh, with their community. You know, so many, so many people look to engineering as like, uh, how are we gonna make the next better product or next process improvement or whatever you wanna do? But there's no reason that you can't be doing that in the community. Um, so that i th- i think that's a point that we need to get driven home to people is that uh we might as well be contributing um rather than working for a big company you know toro uh caterpillar you name it any big thing you know
0: yeah i think the i think the students seem to be wanting more of those opportunities to feel like they're contributing and not that they're not getting at, at those big companies but they're definitely feeling probably a little bit more reward for that work or more connection there, like you said, uh, um, really feeling part of that community and feeling like they're making a, a, a real difference to our, our real problems.
3: Well, yeah, especially right now in Minneapolis, there's so much opportunity. I mean, well, I would imagine in Portland there's a fair amount too with the rioting that's going on, but uh, you know, our, our community was so severely damaged um, that uh, opportunities for the students to get back is, uh, is very important. Um, You know, Anuj and I talked about this. One of the things that we, you know, in a typical industrial or a typical engineering program when you do your capstone, you have student, you have probably have companies approach the college and say, I've got this project that I want to work on. Um, Will you assign students to it? Um, Finding these type of nonprofit opportunities are different. Um, And that really where you need to go looking is your friend circle or your um, professional circle, you might look at the like the board level of the college to see if you can find people who are interfacing in the community that can bring these projects into into the college, um, because your typical nonprofit is not looking for uh, industrial or mechanical engineers to come in and do these jobs. So finding them, it's a more non-traditional thing to try and find these projects. Um, so I guess my point is, we're looking to our peer circle to find these, Find these opportunities rather than looking to uh, uh, you know having a company come in and solicit the work
0: yeah I would imagine that that's <laughs> a great point there that um, a lot of the organizations don't know what their what their need is or what is out there for resources that are looking for that um, project experience and so yeah kind of saying here's what we can bring to the table is this something helpful and probably they're saying yeah once you kind of explain what your industrial engineering Uh, work actually entails, um, that's exactly what we need. I had no idea that was a um, a whole major or whole
2: line of study. Jason, do you want to mention briefly about the Riceville project and then I can give some like more details on that, like how I involve the students. So probably you can give a little bit of background.
1: The Iowa Valley RC&D and here across Iowa, we do uh, have developed a farmers market managers toolkit, um, for all farmers markets, uh, and their professional volunteers or staff that are run those markets. And so really since, uh, COVID-19, uh, started monthly, we have been facilitating, um, collaborative and educational webinars for farmers markets in Iowa, where we have 40 to 50 markets, uh, talking about, things that they're implementing to make sure that their market's safe, tools that they're needing, and a couple of the markets have asked us about ways that they could uh, provide some online ordering options for their vendors and their customers to, to increase social distancing. And so the Ricefield Farmers Market is, it was a small farmers market up uh, near the Minnesota-Iowa border in northeast Iowa, a small community that Um, Didn't have, well, small population, but then they have a uh, summer, uh, they have a lake uh, nearby and state park that attracts uh, uh, larger than the community's population uh, tourists that come to that area. So they have uh, customers that are both local as well as uh, local uh, tourists too that are coming to the market. And so they approached us about some, some of the tools that we've created and whether they could be used by their market. And news then uh, along with one of the students at Dunwoody College helped create a, a custom uh, a farmer's market uh, ordering platform for their vendors and customers to use. Um,
2: just in adding to that, that tool was also created like using a very low cost, uh, like the, the tool was created at a very low cost and many of the ie techniques such as like standard work instructions creating a workflow and all those con- concepts were applied to create that tool and ricele to farmers market has been using that for last uh, 2 months now approximately so like so, like some of the like lean techniques such as standard work instructions and like creating a like a val- like a value stream mapping like before and after the covid like how the farmers market will operate as well as like it in also involved like a lot of tool development using Visual Basic for them to like automate a lot of the operations. So we don't want them to like do a lot of like manage a lot of Excel sheets when they are moving their farmers' markets to online uh, like ordering platform. So we developed a lot of like some tools for them uh, to automate all these operations using like macros, for example. So And the idea was like, uh, the idea to create a standard work instruction and idea to create this tool was how other farmers market can also like, uh, like replicate this tool, this particular tool for like, uh, like in this time of like COVID, for example. And also we have like started to discover like, uh, there are some important metrics that farmers market need to actually capture for being more efficient. And we are uh, right now like figuring it out, like how this online platform that we created for the Riceville farmer's market can help capture all those metrics for farmer's market to be more efficient. So uh, it's kind of a like a blessing in disguise. I'm not sure whether it is the right word, but I think how this online farmer's market can be in place in conjunction with the traditional farmer's market and, like, and at the same time making them more efficient. So that' was the whole objective of this particular project, and I can share the details like of the online platform that we created for them in the link. Uh,
0: yeah. there was a local farmers market here that I went and helped a little bit and and so that was definitely a um, similar situation that they, they did have a platform they were using, but what they didn't know the system wasn't giving them metrics on when people were had scheduled to show up okay. and so it was they were kind of blind to what was going on inside of the system so In terms of staffing and uh, volunteers and getting them to the right areas to be able to handle the spike in maybe pickup times um, for people coming through and this is a vehicle pickup drive-through format they were kind of blind to that and so that was part of it is trying to get out reports and data to say here's what the plan is and we're halfway through or we're 30 you know 75 percent of the way through so we can start to shift resources now over to clean up and uh, customer service and things like that but without that you're kind of like we'll just stay there until just in case and yeah. that doesn't you know maximize the use of the resource the limited resources that they have yeah are the, are the students also doing the programming like the visual basic oh yeah uh, or the, are you pulling in other groups for that
2: yeah so the one student at dunwoody like uh david like uh david has also taught that particular student so uh, like he uh, like he did the visual like the coding uh, in visual Basic, for that tool so i was like advising him but he is the one who primarily did that part
1: yeah i was just um one last thing i wanted to to note is uh one uh aspect that we added to the relationship with the student dunwood at danaudi allen um in this last project with riceville is actually involving him in some grant writing experience um, it was a very small application, but it was some fun to help compensate his uh, time. You know, it wasn't awarded yet or that we know of, but um, it was just a good experience, I think, for him as a student to also in this kind of community impact world is that he got that experience in that project as well. So that's something I would highly recommend in these kinds of student university nonprofit relationships too.
3: My name's Dave Adolphson, I teach uh, industrial and mechanical engineering at Dunwoody College of Technology in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, As you can see due to COVID, we're all working at home, I'm in my basement, um, so it's nice to see all of you. A little bit of background on me, um, I've been teaching at Dunwoody now for three and a half years. I came out of industry, um, worked at a variety of of different jobs from aerospace to construction to uh, defense, and Dunwoody... Are, is a little bit different. We're traditionally looked at as a technical college. Um, we offer two-year degrees in things like robotics or CNC machining or um, radiological technicians, or just a variety of different uh, two-year programs. And over the last uh, 12 or 15 years, we've run, run us what's called a degree completion program. So we have students who come in with like an automation degree or robotics, CNC, whatever, that's we look at that as like a freshman software, sophomore sophomore um, type experience, and then we offer junior senior um, two year completion degrees where they come out with a uh, degree in industrial engineering. Um, over the last was it five years an age or so, um, we've offered a full school of engineering where we're do, we're offering complete degrees in um, industrial mechanical software and electrical engineering, um, and we're adding a controls engineering program. Um, That's just like any other large university. The difference is that we have, I would say, this feeder program of two-year degree students that come in. Anyway, one of the courses that I teach is senior capstone um, in the industrial engineering program. And in that, many of our students, well, all of the industrial engineering students already have two-year associate's degrees. Um, So many of them have gone, gotten their associate's degree, left and gone into the workforce for two, three, four, five, 10, 15 years, however long it is, um, and sort of hit the ceiling that they can get to with just a two-year degree, and so they're coming back for a completion degree. Um, Traditionally speaking, um, prior to COVID, I would say about 90% of our students are employed in industry and working. Um, Many of them working as, um, for all practical purposes, engineers, but they don't have the second, They don't have the second or the correct degree to have the title so they're back for work
0: do you feel like that works well when they can take two years go to work and then come back is that a do you think that's a good um, way of doing it in terms of getting some real-world experience or does it seem pretty similar whether they go through four years in a row
3: you know I think that's a person by person thing Um, and some people want to get into the workforce and start making money right away. And, you know, we're maybe digressing a little bit here, but uh, I think colleges are gonna be rethinking how they operate on the other side of this uh, pandemic, um, because there's gonna be a lot of unemployment. Um, Unemployment, you know, if you couple unemployment with student debt, you've got real problems. Um, So I think to some degree you know, getting a little bit of education and getting, then getting out into the work world sooner rather than later is probably a good thing for a lot of people. Um, when you're young, you know, 18, 19, you don't necessarily know what you want to be. Um, so not investing four years into a program that you maybe don't wanna do um, or a career that you don't wanna do um, is, I would say, probably a good thing. Um, I think we're, as, as you become an adult, we all become better, have better ability to know where we want to go with our lives. And so I, yeah, I, I, I like this, me- this method, um, but it might not be for everybody. Somebody who knows that they want to be a research chemist or they knows that they want to uh, be an airline pilot or whatever it is, you, know, you then, you're, then you're, you should go and do it. But a lot of people when they're 18, 19 years old don't have any idea. Anyway, because of the background of these two-year students that are coming back for their second two years, many of them are employed. Um, Typically, 90% of our students are employed. And working for companies like, for instance, here in town, we've got Donaldson companies, Caterpillar, um, 3M, on and on and on, um, in some sort of technical position. So when they're doing their industrial engineering training, they learn about things like Lean or Six Sigma or Um, 5S, you name it, you know, all the tools that you would traditionally encounter in an engineering program. And they have a job where they might be working in a technician level, and they understand their job, and they say, oh, hey, if I made this process improvement, I could make my job better. So many of our students do their capstones right inside of the company that they're working for. On occasion, though, we do have students that are not in a position where they can uh, do do a capstone project at their employer, Um, and in those occasions, that's where we can reach out to, and in our cases, Anuj and I have been working on it, uh, nonprofits, and say, hey, I've got this industrial engineer, do you have any problems, Uh, you know? Well, the first thing that I had to do, the project that we did was with a company called Second Harvest Heartland, which is a part of Feeding America, a food bank, here in the Twin Cities. The way that the, the relationship evolved was that a close friend of mine happens to work there, and she and I talk about what an industrial engineer is, and I say, do you have any problems um, that an engineer could pro- potentially solve? And so there was this a lot of time that I had spent with this woman, um, so she understood what I did and what, what industrial engineers do. The next step in developing the relationship was I had to put together a, a basically a simple presentation, and I went into Second Harvest and talked to their management and said, this is what industrial engineering is. I teach students these skills, and." do you have problems inside of your organization, either logistical problems or um, systems problems, computing problems, whatever, um, where I would be able to turn my student loose um, and they can solve that problem for you. And so some of it was, as engineers, we all speak in jargon. So, and what I found out is that the nonprofits have their own jargon and the idea, the main thing to think about is you have to be able to communicate, okay, what we call 5S, you're calling something else. Um, Getting past that, I mean, it's like, you have to educate the nonprofit, whatever nonprofit you're at, that this is our language, that's your language, they're the same thing, we can work together um, and I can provide you with resources because I have students. So that was sort of the first step. And then the second step was, in our case, we were looking at a, a distribution and supply chain problem but uh I probably the bigger picture is nonprofits oftentimes operate on a shoestring budget and they can't afford to hire an engineer, you know, be it mechanical, electrical, whatever. So for us to as instructors to reach out and educate, first of all, educate them and then second of all provide them with this resource that's of tremendous value to their organization um, is a very powerful thing. And I would say the more institutions that can find ways to do this, the more we can contribute to societal problems. And, and it's wonderful, because you, you get the education going on for the students and you get the societal kickback, so.
0: We got a lot of students and um, instructors, professors that are part of our sustainable development division. And yeah. so I think you know um, this is gonna be really valuable to just kind of hear some of the, the ways in which they can better connect in to work on some of these really you know
3: important challenges. And that's just it. It's like I was saying earlier, rather than looking to industry, you really need to look to your connections and your friend group to find these people and make these connections um, with what I would call non-traditional projects.
0: How long do you think it took to develop that um, when you first reached out to your friend to when you had students actually participating? Translating the the language and all that, and trying to find a project.
3: At at least a year, I would say. Um, That sounds about right. (laughs) Yeah, it uh, because you know it's the first thing. So this person that I know um, is a climbing partner of mine. So as we go climbing, we would you know most of the time not talk about this type of thing, but that every, every once in a while the topic comes around to it. So there was a long time coming in developing my relationship with her, where she understood what I do to the degree that we can have that conversation of hey, this is what my students do. Do you have an application inside your inside your organization? And then th- to take that next step of getting in front of their management and talking about this is, again, the education process. So it, yes, it's a long fostering type thing.
0: And then you've got, so then you've had, how long have you been working with Second Harvest now? Um,
3: uh, we have been two semesters. Um, okay. And that, you know, that's sort of one of the other things to think about here is capstones can go well or they can go not well. Um, and the first semester that we worked with them, we had a team of three students working inside and it took them probably 10 weeks for them to understand what they were dealing with. Um, and then the remaining eight weeks of the semester, um, they were really quite effective. Um, <clears throat> and that, that's another, another interesting point is that when you take somebody who's an engineer who's accustomed to working on machines or um, factory floor or what have you, when you bring them into a nonprofit like you know a food distribution network, it doesn't feel like their traditional job. Uh, they you know and so there's that whole le- learning process of realizing, okay, how does this place work? What does this company do? Um, that. Many of us take for granted um, going into that type of thing.
2: That was one like thing that we I mentioned also. The initial few weeks were rough just because I think there was a lot of like as Dave mentioned like technical jargon from our side and technical jargon from the nonprofit side. So I think it took a lot of time to just like understand each other's needs. We all are on the one page like kind of situation. Like it took around like eight to ten weeks. And once, like they, like the students know, like what they need to achieve from the project, I think then it was pretty quick. In the last eight to ten weeks, they were able to deliver what was the objective of the project. Yeah. And I think one of the main things that uh, Dave mentioned is like applying the IE techniques in a non-traditional settings. Like I'm talking about, like applying Lean in a traditional setting such as manufacturing industry. But I think. Uh, Those concepts were already being taught to them in the courses they took, like for example, quality and lean systems and those kind of courses they took in their like previous semesters. So I think it was a kind of like, we had to guide the students like, how uh, like 5S can be applied to data, for example. 5S can be applied to a manufacturing setting. It can be also applied to data. So I think those kind of things uh, were definitely like challenging. But I think once those were like being clearly articulated to the students, I think they got, they
3: got it like really well. The first semester that we worked with Second Harvest, the students really put together a... Uh, Second Harvest knew where all of their food banks were.
2: The food uh, pantries.
3: Their food pantries were. Um, and they also knew where food was coming from. But they didn't have a good picture of, shall I take the food from this portion of the state? And move it to this portion of the state um and they didn't really know like do i have sufficient capacity here for the demand or not um and anuj i suppose we could do a screen share showing uh, showing the results of that would that yeah, be possible
2: i think i can uh, share the paper that describes a complete project but okay. i think uh the in in short what i can say is like the second harvest have like different ways to rescue food from donors like through like retail stores, manufacturers, distributors, and for example, like agriculture surplus from pharma. They were like having a fleet of drugs, which like delivers approximately like 40 to 50% of their food to the agency partners whom they directly work with. But uh, the problem they, they were facing is like, they wanted to reduce their dependency on, the, on their fleet. And they wanted to meet the supply and demand like, like more of locally. So that they can get the food from where it is available and distribute it there and there. So that like agency partners can dis- like pick up the food from retail stores and distribute to the, like, for example, the homeless shelters in that particular region. So rather than like having second harvest send a fleet of trucks to the retailers and then picking up that food and dropping it off at the agency partners, they want to strengthen their food pantries to get their food by themselves from the agency partners and distribute it so they want to do this supply demand capacity analysis uh, in which they know for each like geographic location we in this particular project we considered the geographic location or a unit as a census tract so they want they studied like at each census tract what is the food availability what is the food demand and what is the current capacity to handle that So based on that, like uh, the students created uh, like a GIS based tool using Microsoft Excel and they like learned it from like start to end within that particular semester. So that's why initially learning part, like they they were not being, uh, it's not uh, like a traditional industrial engineering problem like that is being taught in the courses, but still the concepts apply as I mentioned earlier. So they have to learn this new tool that was definitely uh, kind of a challenging thing, thing for them. But the students in the fall 2019 semester, they learned it, then they developed the tool and they delivered the project to the Second Harvest.
3: Well, and another thing about the way Second Harvest was operating was they had their supply data, they had their demand data, and they, they knew what their distribution network was. But though that information was held in three different places. Yeah. Um, so you know one group knew where the demand was, one group knew what the supply was, and one group knew where the distribution centers were but there was no transparency between the three. Um, <clears throat> and so the students had to take, and all of them organized their spreadsheets and data differently. So the students had to take these three data sets, standardize them, for, you know sort them, throw out what they didn't need, standardize them so they're all the same and they can talk to each other, and then use that GIS-based modeling to show, this is supply, this is demand, this is uh, capacity, geographically throughout the entire state. So <clears throat> that, you know, it was, that project was quite successful. The second project we were looking at, we took that information and said, okay, we've got areas of need in Mankato, or Mankato Minnesota area, it needs to be studied because supply and demand capacity is way out of balance there. We picked out three areas around the state, began that work, and then the, here's where a capstone doesn't go well because we had uh, COVID in the middle of this thing. It's, everything came to a screeching halt, so. Um, as far as going forward, I don't know. Well, one of the one of the points to take away here is that as you build a relationship with a, a second uh, with a nonprofit, one of the learning curves was us learning their language, and them learning our language. And once you've done that, um, you know, if you have your senior, we we run our capstone in the second semester of senior year, but we can be looking at our first semester senior year, and picking students for that and getting them up to speed of what that language is. So like it's, I would say the first semester is the worst. Um, But then once you've learned a little bit about the company, you can start grooming students for that ongoing semester so you keep rolling forward. Um, Having said all that, I don't know where we're gonna go in the future because I know in talking to the people at Second Harvest, they're terrified about what's going on right now and they're afraid that their demand is going to skyrocket, um, especially after after this month is over. If the government doesn't pass any further some sort of aid package for people, so I don't know, I don't know what next semester is going to look like like <laughs> for us.
2: <clears throat> and one specific thing, Brian, uh, I just wanted to mention is uh, the results that the first group created for Second Harvest Heartland. Uh, actually, this uh, like uh, last this summer or this like spring semester, the second harvest Heartland was writing a, like a grant to like uh, improve their infrastructure to like, uh, in terms of like food delivery. And they have uh, like uh, used this, the, some of these results that the, the students have come up with and some of the tools and the analysis and the numbers that the students have come up with to put that in the grant. So I think applicability of the project with respect to nonprofits, can also not only like direct impact in which you improve the efficiency of nonprofits, but also like help them in like writing the grants and using the analysis that the students do in the Capstone projects to use for like grant writing purposes. So that's a like a very like two different impacts that could be created through student uh, projects on nonprofits. Like one direct impact and one is like long term impact in which you like help them like in grant writing and all those
3: I think is getting the grants and you know in education and what we're teaching our students as engineers uh, as we get in, as more engineers get into non-traditional roles um, you know and I'm thinking about like the healthcare fields, um, it could be extremely valuable for a young engineer to learn how to write a grant um, or learn how to apply for a grant because I think we'll see more and more of us in these so-called non-traditional roles as companies realize they need to increase efficiency to stay competitive. Um, or There's a lot of the
0: program, I know Jason um, and and Dave, have a lot of the uh, projects been tied to a grant or you think they're more like a uh, supplement to that? Um, how has that been working with like the capstone projects or student projects? Are they are they linked in with a grant at all, or are they just kind of like again a feeder into the data that they need to show on the grant to get to get the support behind investing this money into that program?
3: Well, yeah, <laughs> it. I would say you know, if every capstone project's different, um, but it certainly could tie directly into you know, like we have deliverables and there's five deliverables for the capstone project. Um, and it's entirely possible that maybe one of those deliverables is writing a grant. Um, and it, it depends on what the non, where the nonprofit is in their, in their work and what they need. But I, I guess I would just say if we're going to educate engineers to work in the nonprofit sector, they'd better know how to write grants because that's where the money comes from.
1: Yeah, I would say that our projects where we've had students involved haven't, uh, required that grants be part of them. They often are just because that is our primary funding structure. Um, But we found that it's pretty easy to involve students when it's not grant-funded work because um, it doesn't cost much to involve students. Uh, We primarily just think it's a good practice, so we've kind of worked it into a lot of our, it's just a practice within our organization.
3: Jason, would you find it useful if the students hit the ground with that information? I guess is another way of thinking about this, or with that that skill set.
1: It's an important skill set. I don't know if grant writing is a skill set versus like being able to communicate through writing and being able to write like what is the need, what is the problem, problem statement. Um, I would say that is the skill set, but grant writing is a way to learn that skill set
0: um, or improve it. And I think having just access to the data or being able to provide that data um, in a way that helps explain the magnitude of the problem or the impact the problem is having or the potential benefits of a solution, whether it's been tested or piloted out. And here's what the, if you escal- or scale this up, this would be the potential outcomes. Um, I think that's a, a really helpful thing that would tie in nicely to grants.
3: Well, I guess my one last thought is uh, there's a tremendous amount of work to be done here in the Twin Cities um, just because of all the all of the rioting and destruction. And one of the things there was a listening session with the Dunwoody College president for all all of the faculty to sort of talk to each other about where we were at. As faculty, you know, engineering faculty, Capstone faculty. Um, challenge your student or your school leadership to find these opportunities for you. Um, And I I said that, I said something similar to our president in the listening session, but if you look at president, provost, board of trustees, um, these are all very high ranking individuals in the community, Um, and they will have the connections that we need to find these types of um, efforts. So that would be one thing that I guess I would advise uh, faculty to think about. You know, it's, yeah, That that's where I'll leave it.
0: <clears throat> Excellent. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Jason, anything else you want to share?
1: No, I don't think so. I think we covered a lot of the topics and projects and ways students have been involved in all of our
0: work, so. Yeah, great job, Jason. Keep up the good work. And yeah, look forward to some other projects. Maybe we'll do this again in a year or so and see what new projects you've got, um, dealing with the effects of COVID and how things had to be adjusted and changed. So um, yeah, this is uh, this is great. Thanks everybody for participating and sharing.
3: Thank you. Yeah, let's, let's you check in you. again, you know, cause it's, <clears throat> for any of our institutions, this is really a, a distinguishing thing to, uh, to be doing work of this nature. Um, So I I would say let's touch base again on this.
0: Okay. Dave, Anoush, Jason, thank you so much. Thank you so much, everybody. Are you interested in learning more about Lean and Six Sigma? Or are you looking to expand your existing skills to apply them to environmental impacts at your work or in the local community? Check out our free online course called Lean Six Sigma and the Environment on thinkific.com. We'll teach you about the Lean Forms of Waste and Waste Walks, which stands for water, air emissions, solid waste, toxins, and energy. We'll go over examples of reducing electricity and solid waste, teach you how to involve your facilities and environment safety and health personnel. We'll provide guidance on how to green your 5S and Lean Kaizen events and many other tools specific to finding environmental opportunities. Learn more at lean6sigmaenvironment.org.